Hey, we've been in a, a sermon series the last few weeks, and it's called Invitation to Wholeness. You'll see that on the bulletins that are by the doors, and um, kind of the, the overarching um, point of this series is that we're invited by God into a part, like participation in the life of God. Like, if you want to put it in a nutshell, our life in Christ is a participatory life. We're, this is, I don't know, if some of us grew up in evangelical settings where you you prayed the prayer, or maybe another setting where you prayed the prayer for salvation and then you kind of got your ticket to heaven, you're good. But really what we're saying is there's so much more to our life in God than just that moment. Those moments are important, but it's the life in between that we live, the, the living like you're doing now, coming to church on a regular old Sunday um, that is as important as those moments are. And so that's what this series is really about. Um, and today we're looking at the invitation to formation. And the text we'll be considering this morning is from Acts chapter 2. Um, this is verses 42 to 47. I'll read for us, and then we can dive into the text. Um, and this comes right after the day of Pentecost, which actually in the church calendar happens next Sunday. So we've kind of jumped in the, in the, in the narrative a little bit, but um, I feel like this text really informs us on this idea of formation. The believers, this is like the first church, um, The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the community, to their shared meals, and to their prayers. A sense of awe came over everyone. God performed many wonders and signs through the apostles. All the believers were united and shared everything. They would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute the proceeds to everyone who needed them. Every day they met together in the temple and ate in their homes. They shared food with gladness and simplicity. Let's pray again. God, thank you for this this simple and yet profound and evocative text, this picture we have of the first church. And so might our church gathered here this morning, though thousands of years have passed since, uh, might we have a deeper understanding of what it is that you want to speak to us through this church, through this text. Might your spirit that is in and through this word, speak to our life, our gathered life, right here, right now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Oops. Well, um, in 2015, there was an artist named Eric Pickersgill, who is a Bend artist, Bend-based artist, a photographer, who published a, a then-obscure set of photographs. Now it's been well-documented called Removed, in which he uh, presented a series of large format portraits of individuals in various contexts who appear to be holding a mobile phone or device, um, though their devices have been removed from their hands. So go ahead and throw this first one up. Uh, You can't see it as well, but that couple, (laughs) newly married, has fake phones in their hands. And I think I've showed this when it first came out, so some of you, this will be repetitive, but the concept came to Pickersgill while he was sitting in a cafe in Troy, New York in 2014, and he observed a family sitting there, all of them on their personal mobile devices. And uh, it was one of those moments, he said, where you see something so amazingly common that it startles you into consciousness of what's actually happening, and it's impossible to forget. A sort of physical closeness and emotional distance that just couldn't be more pronounced. 
And so an idea was hatched for him for most of 2014 and then 2015, and then actually it happened again in 2018 in Southeast Asia. Pickersgill recreated these similar scenes. People socializing, driving cars, working and relaxing while holding, quote-unquote holding, devices. What he would do is he would have them have their device, hold it. There's even a TED Talk where he did this at the whole room, and then remove it, but keep your gaze there like that. And while those are staged photographs, and there's a few of these going right now, they're sort of performance art, it, it serves as this profound commentary on how mobile devices have become a phantom limb of sorts for us, slowly robbing us of authentic and meaningful connection. How do, how do, you, how do you feel? I mean... I've been, I've been that guy or those, you know, that, that mom there. How do you feel as you see those? Do you see yourself in them? Do you see your family in them, your friends? Is there a sense in, in you that you're like, oh, <laughs> I've unconsciously allowed myself to become something I don't celebrate? See, uh, the reality for us as we come to this conversation on formation is that which we hold forms us. That which we hold forms us. And this might be, you know, you can see in the images, people are being formed, shaped almost kind of like morbidly, like there's a sort of rigor mortis that's sort of set in as they gaze blankly at their hands and whatever it is in their, is on their device, you know. This isn't, by the way, a commentary on... <laughs> Social media, so just set that aside. Um, we're all being formed by something, whether it is that content or something else. It, it could be a relationship. It could be a, a place of work. It could be a community. I mean, I love what Dirk shared about Nihamachi and that, that time in our history. There's a, a sense of a formation happening in that context and the people in that context being formed by it. And the underlying reality of that formation, whether it's that place or the people we live with or our family of origin or the news you watch or the podcast you listen to or whatever it is, the reality is we're all being formed by something. Every one of us, youngest to oldest. doesn't matter how young or old you are, how spiritual or unspiritual you are, whether your text, the sacred text this morning is the New York Times or the Bible. Um, something today is forming you and everyone on our planet. Something today is forming you. Just because you're here doesn't make you super special. You're being formed in a way, and everyone else is too. Scripture speaks to this in many places. Maybe the most well-known is Romans 12, where Paul says, do not be conformed to the pattern of the world, so the world is being formed, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. We're constantly, body, soul, spirit, being shaped and tugged and formed by that which we hear and watch and listen to and think and experience. And that shaping influence can be either healthy, it could be, I guess, benign, or it could be unhealthy. It could produce fruit, as Paul says in Galatians, or it could produce death. Everyone's being formed all the time, whether you want to or not, whether you're Christian or not. That's what I'm trying to say. So the question becomes for us as we begin, as we talk about spiritual formation, um, is what is forming you today? Who and what, what voice, what people, what is forming you today? Who are you allowing to form you today? I know you're here, <laughs> so you're allowing me to form you and the text that God, uh, this word of God to form you. Um, 
But what, we think about it more broadly, what, what is forming you in your imagination, in your life? And of course, as I ask that, and I give you the context that we're in a church right now, I know I've created a sort of dichotomy between what we call the sacred and the secular, right? The spiritual and the physical, like the, prof- the, the profane and the pious, you know? We might be led to think that if we just watch a little less Netflix or, you know, spend a little less time on my device, <laughs> maybe be a little less self-focused and a little more time in my Bible, come to church more often, you know, do more good, we'll just become more like Jesus. If I pray a little more, I'm going to be more like God, right? And of course, uh, nothing could be further from the truth, actually. Ruth Haley Barton, she's an author and theologian who writes frequently about formation. She has a book called Life Together in Christ. She says this in this book, one of the great mysteries of my growing up years as a pastor's kid, some of you are pastor's kids, and I love you because you teach me a lot. I'm a pastor, so I have kids, and that's, you know, like frightening as I talk to some of you. Uh, but what she says as a pastor's kid uh, was watching these people in our church and noticing that some of them were just not changing. She goes on to say, many of them remain selfish, stuck in their ways, spiritually lifeless, in conditions that seem to only worsen over time, not get better. And then, she said, as I became a grown-up in the church, a leader, a pastor herself, I started to notice the same thing about myself. Even though I participated fully in the life of the community, I was on staff at a church, I was there faithfully, I had to acknowledge I was not changing. Although I could sometimes get better at controlling negative behaviors and thoughts, um, hiding my bad attitudes, I was not being transformed at the deepest level of my life. I had made a disheartening discovery that it's possible, listen, to hang out with other Christians a lot, meet regularly for worship, study your Bible, join a church, and call, even call yourself a community that's seeking Christ, but not change in all the ways that count. It's possible to do all those things and not change, right? I mean, as a pastor and a leader in this community, that that, that hurts, okay? (laughs) It's possible that none of us are being changed in the ways we want. It's possible that this means nothing. It's possible. Just because we call ourselves Christians in a Christian community doesn't mean anything about what's actually happening in our hearts and lives. And so Barton goes on to say that there's actually, she, she observes this scientifically through a Barna study that was done in 2015, where the majority of people who identified as Christian, 52%, believe that there's much more to the Christian life than they've ever experienced. 46% of those say their life has not changed at all as a result of going to church. So at least, almost half of you, nothing's happening. You're here, you're part of this, you're faithful, you give, you learn, you lean in, you read, you pray. Uh, is anything happening for you? Think about this. As part of as your participation, I'm not exactly sure what brought you here today. I'm, I'm grateful for every single one of you that you're here. Deeply grateful. It could be that you're just, this is what you do on a Sunday. It could be that you're also deeply desiring this formation. And so being part of this is out of that desire to change. But you, like Barton, are kind of left at the end of the day wanting. You're like, eh. And it wasn't really the sermon or the music. It's just, I'm not sure anything's happening right now. You're not seeing change. You're not experiencing it. And so here's another question for you. Do you ever imagine for yourself what it would look like to be part of a formative community? Being invited to formation by God. What would it look like to be part of a forming 
community. Because um, the reality is, spiritual formation is never ultimately just about us mastering spiritual practices and habits. As good as those are, you know, it's, it's not intended to be purely an individual or inward journey. As much as we emphasize that, meditation and reading your Bible and contemplative prayer and all the things, um, instead it's meant to be a shared process. Barton and others have emphasized this in their writing. Her definition of spiritual formation is this, that it is a process that takes place incrementally over time with others in the context of disciplines and practices. Do you hear that? There's a sense of withness when it comes to formation in the context of disciplines and practices that are really important, but you cannot remove, the context always changes, but you cannot remove the others from that equation, which is just another way to say that the essence of formation is that we learn to do these things that we talk about in community um, and thus grow in our capacity to discern God's will together. It's not good, as God says in Genesis 2, for man and for woman to be alone. The first not good in the Bible, which is not an indictment of, um, you know, extroverts or introverts or anything like that. It's not a rejection of solitude or silence. It's just a reality that we need one another. We just need one another. And so we need to be asking, what might a transforming community look like if we really want that for our lives? You know, if, if the habits and the practices and, and church is kind of leaving you wanting, what, what might it looked like to pivot a bit and to do those things and be part of this, but to see it unfold a little more in the way that God might, to cultivate a community like that. And so to help us think about that question, let's look at Acts 2. Um, This is, like I said, a descriptive text of the earliest, one of the earliest Christian communities we have a record of, kind of how they cultivated transforming community. And um, the, we want to look at three of the dynamics in their lives. And I've already spent a lot of time setting this up, so I'll spend a little less time in each of these. But they're kind of important. They, they had three dynamics that I think are really critical. A dynamic of deep devotion, a dynamic of incarnational presence, and then a dynamic of life and rhythm. Okay? Deep devotion, incarnational presence, and life and rhythm. Okay? So the first of these is deep devotion. The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the community, to their shared meals, and to their prayers. Um, we're going to look at different aspects here, so, but I really want to dive into this word devotion for a few minutes. When we hear devotion, obviously we have our own daily devotions. Quiet time, you know? How many of us think of it that way? They're devoting themselves. Maybe not individually, but they're, they're having a Bible study, maybe. You know, they're, they're doing something spiritual, um, which are all good and important. It's good and important for us to be spending time with God, to listen to God's voice, to learn from God, what God says about God and about others and about ourselves. But the key here is this is not that. This is not what this is speaking about. Like, have your daily devotion. Check the box, you know. The Greek word here is a, a, a compound Greek word, a proskatero. It's called proskatero. The, the, the kartos is the second half of that, is the Greek word for strength. The first part is pros, which just is a preposition. To mean, it means to go toward something. And so literally, devotion, proskatero, means to give constant attention to something, to persevere, really. They, they persevered in these things. They give constant attention to these things. Okay, that's what devotion means. And notice what they're giving constant attention to, to learning together, to life together, to meals together, and to prayers together. Do you hear it? The apostles' teaching 
to community, to shared meals and prayers. They're, they're devoting themselves to this, like I've already talked about a bit, to this community. All the first spiritual disciplines is what, I, what I'm trying to say, if you want to think of them this way, were communal, all of them. They did everything together. They didn't, in other words, they didn't raise home right after Pentecost. Like I said, this text happens right after Pentecost. Spirit comes down, tongues of fire, everybody hears God. They did not race home after that and have a personal quiet time and meditate on what they experienced and listen to some worship music on Spotify. As, and I do that, by the way. I love listening to Spotify, and Elizabeth knows this constantly. Uh, but they devoted themselves more deeply to the apostles' teaching, shared beliefs and values, fellowship, shared relationships, breaking of bread, shared meals, and prayers, shared rhythms. And the rest of the passage kind of talks about this, how, they, how it demonstrates how much their life was shared in verses 43 to 47. Awe came on everyone because many signs and wonders were done. All who believed were together, had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute them to all as any had need. There's such an ethos of sharing here. If, I mean, if you try and find an instance in the Bible where someone accepts Jesus as their Lord and Savior and then goes merrily on their, their own way and just lives life of their own personal experience of God, it's not there. It doesn't exist. It's not in the Bible. Um, and so, I mean, it's important for us to have those moments in our lives, like I mentioned earlier, but it's, it's what, what, you know, what I'm trying to say is that we are formed in the community of God. And, and the, the hard thing for us as now 21st century Americans is that we are dealing with an overall consumer mentality when it comes to Christian community. Um, a mentality that keeps the individual front and center. You, you know, you're here. We're all here. Even in the pronouns in our songs, it's a lot of me and Jesus, contemporary worship songs. Um, when we see the you in like a lot of Paul's letters, that's a personal pronoun to us. We don't realize it's a, it's not a personal pronoun. It's y'all. It's all you from the South. Y'all. It's always y'all. And, and, but we have a mentality in our culture that keeps me front and center. I want what I want when I want it and the measure I want it. So that, that drives so much of our formation. And so the deep devotion we're talking about here, the sharing of life together, really doesn't, it, what it's saying is that doesn't, you know, like formation doesn't really happen that way, or at least the formation that God would want for you. It doesn't really happen that way. Uh, Romans 12.5 says it this way, that we who are many are one, in Christ. We who are many, individuals, are one in Christ. Individually, we're members of one another. So there's, there's a tension between our individuality and the community. And the deepest level of transformation we can experience is really found in one another. Um, in, in, in a phrase that shows up in Paul's writings over three dozen times. One another, one another, one another. I think we did a whole series on the one another's earlier this uh, last year. We need one another if we're going to experience deep and lasting transformation. And, uh, you know, I'm going through a training in spiritual direction right now. One of the faculty who is in that program is Roman Nita Harrison Overstreet, who came to Bethany years ago and, and as one of our speakers, as part of our then-growing beginning ministry of racial justice and reconciliation um, and she talks about this need for one another using the, the idea of beloved community. She picks up on the work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I didn't know this until she spoke about it, but that came from 
a man named Josiah Royce, who was a professor at Harvard. Um, and then before them, the theologians in South and East Africa. So it's a pretty ancient idea. But she said this in, in one of her talks. She said, when we see people as other and outside, how can we build connection? How can we live in relationships? And how can we experience healing? I mean, those are all formative connection relationships and healing are all formative things. And the answer, of course, is we can't. When you're other and outside of me, when I'm not connected to you, you know, I am because you are uh, individually together, these kind of dynamics, we can't experience formation. And then she said this, healing, connection, and deep formation in Christ can only ever happen as we reach across, not down. As we reach, learn to reach across, not down. And then begin to see all the possibilities that all relationships possess for us. Um, people with different ideas and different values, as we share space, we actually get to share in transformation. And this is like one of the theological, I mean, I loved what you shared, Dirk, but one of the underlying theological reasons behind this pilgrimage, and even the Heritage Months more broadly that we celebrate, is it's part of our formation as people. You may not identify as any one of these particular communities. You may not identify as Japanese or Chinese uh, but what the reality is, is we are not whole unless we're together with communities that are very different than us. Uh, and so we walk streets, we walk alleys, we, we experience history in this way. We're invited literally to walk and then grow and, and, and then see what God's doing. That's the invitation through this journey. And so if you can't make it today, then do it later, you know, and, and know that your community has been part of this and learn together like that. So we can't come to faith. We, we don't come to faith alone. We can't live in faith alone. That's the punchline here. Deep devotion. Here's the second thing. Uh, they were committed to incarnational presence. You could call this table transformation. Um, this is for you, Silas. <laughs> he's doing a doctor ministry in hospitality, and he's a total foodie. So, and I love it because I learn a lot from boards like Suvi. I didn't know what Suvi was until I met you, Silas. So, verse forty-two says this again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which is shorthand, I said, for shared beliefs, shared learning, community, shared relationships, the breaking of bread, shared meals, and then to prayer, uh, shared rhythms. And so, and as you see this food, ethos of food throughout the, the scripture, in, in verse 46, again, they're, they're going to each other's homes and breaking bread during this time. There's a foodiness, a very earthy, ordinary kind of, you know, we all eat. You know, family meals, we go out to dinner with each other. We sometimes try and go to dinner at each other's houses. It doesn't work out, but we do it. And, and which is interesting to me because some, some scholars like to argue that verse 42 and then the breaking of bread here is actually a sort of hyperlink, if you will, for the Lord's Supper. They want to they they spiritualize this meal. Of course, they're having communion. I mean, they're, they're a Christian community. Don't good Christian communities have communion every Sunday? I think we've had it twice this year, and they've been in those little snack packs. And so they look at us and go, oh, you're not a Christian community. But interestingly, what most scholars agree to is that the term describing breaking of bread here is the term to describe the ordinary Jewish Sunday dinner or Monday dinner, whatever that would be, the ordinary meal. It's not the Lord's Supper. In other words, to, to break bread is a way to say, let's eat. Um, you know, we, we like to hold hands when we are at our table and we pray. And a lot of you guys do that probably as a ritual around your tables. That's the break bread. Let's eat. Let's do this. 
which I think we can all identify with. We eat. <laughs> Often around tables together with others, we sometimes pray. Sometimes the kids are just filling their mouths before we can even get a word out, right? Your kids are probably like, <laughs> like that. Other times we don't, you know, there's, there's pasta, there's sauce, there's leftovers. Sometimes the pasta's on the wall or the floors, you know. The shorter, the better the prayer, usually for my family. <laughs> like, and I'm the, I'm the culprit of that. Like, can we just get this going, you know? And I think that's an interesting insight when you think about this meal they're having together. Because I don't think their meals, even though we're a couple thousand years on now, were that different than our meals. They weren't necessarily super spiritual people. Yeah, they had Pentecost, and yeah, they're good Jewish people. But they're just people like us, sitting around a table, eating, breaking bread. And I love that, because it speaks toward this idea of formation. We all know this, that meals are usually about more than just merely the food. Your kids know this. I mean, they just want the spaghetti and the sauce, but you know it's more than the food. There's something sacred that's happening around that table. At least in the ancient Near East, they were. For example, in Jewish culture, sharing a meal with someone else had a special significance. Because meals, and this is, again, ordinary meals. Think of your dinner tonight or sometime this week. Um, they, they expressed, when you had a meal with somebody, especially in their home, um, they expressed solidarity with that person. A sort of, I'm with you. Which is why Jesus got in so much trouble for eating meals with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and all those people, always eating meals with them, always in trouble. Because he's saying to the religious elites, I'm with them. I'm in solidarity with them. Not against you, but these are the people I choose to eat with. They're my family. They're my friends. I'm in their homes. He's expressing loyalty and bondedness to the sinners of the world simply by eating with them. There's more than just the food happening there. He's saying, we're family, let's eat. Let's eat. We're family, we're brothers, we're sisters. Our baptism, our shared faith, our, our fellowship at the breaking of bread all point in the direction of God, which is another way to say that we're fed most often by the company that we eat with, not just the food that we eat. The company we eat with feeds us. And this is what the disciples who walk with Jesus on the road to Emmaus that I talked about a couple, or Silas and I talked about when we started this series, express really at the end of their time when they say in Luke 24, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and while he broke bread with us around the table? Weren't our hearts burning within us? I think it's about more than just the bread. It has to be. It's about the presence of Christ. Every time we get around a table, every table you're around, doesn't matter if it's at Wajamaya Food Hall, at your house, in your cafeteria. You're being formed. You have an opportunity to be formed there. And our eyes and our hearts and our minds are being trained to the real presence of Christ with us, among us there. As Paul says in Colossians, Christ is in you, the hope of glory. And Christ is in you too. And Christ is in you, in you. And Christ is in you. And if I will put my phone away, now, I don't always do it perfectly, but we have a rule at our table to no phones, and I'm usually the one who gets called out because I have my phone there. If I'll put that away and recognize Christ in my family, Christ in you, I have an opportunity, not because of the food, but I, you know, I'm sure it'll be good food if you invite me over, 
By the way, this is not a way to get you to invite me to your house. Uh, but if, if I pay attention to you deeply enough to your story, I have an opportunity, and you do too, to be formed in Christ. And that's, I think, what, it, what each of us wants. Not to go to church on Sunday, not to call ourselves Christian so we can get to heaven, but to be transformed, right? Around table, that's, that's where we get to do that. A presence that is in the context of an ordinary, everyday meal. A cup of coffee, like I said, an invitation to someone's house um, where you get to recognize just a fellow human being, another traveler, a pilgrim, so to speak. Um, so that's number two, table transformation, where we get to experience and offer forgiveness, experience and share grace, experience and work toward reconciliation. All the dynamics that we're about happen around tables most frequently. That's number two. So number three, real quick, life and rhythm. So we have deep devotion, commitment to incarnational presence, or you could say just table transformation, and then life and rhythm. They lived life and rhythm. Every day, verse 46, they met together in the temple. They ate in their homes. They shared their food with gladness and joy, or in simplicity. You know, early in the passage, we're told sort of the, the companion verse to this is that they, they devoted themselves to their prayers. Now, if you notice in some English translations, like I don't know which one you have English-wise, like English Standard Version, NRSV, it's translated as the prayers. While in some other translations, like the NIV or the Common English Bible that we use today, it's their prayers. And there's a really important difference there. Um, I think the NIV just says prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. And that's misleading because the way it's written in the Greek, if you had the Greek in front of you, is it uses the, uh, the plural form of prayer, prayers, with the definite article, the prayers. And why that's important is it's suggesting that uh, the reference to prayer here is a, a specific set time of the day where they prayed. Uh, Luke picks up on this in the book of Acts in chapter 3. If you read ahead, he tells us that Peter and John are now going up to the temple at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, not 3.35, you know, we start at 9.35, 9.30 is when we start. They're going up at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, which is the established time of prayer, which suggests that there's times of prayer throughout the day, and these are kind of like where the monastic communities come out of that we have, they have five times a day they pray, and I've been to, how many of you have been to like a monastery or something like that where there's prayer throughout the day, and there's bells, and then you go to prayer, and it happens all throughout the day. And the monks and the nuns will break from their work and break from whatever they're doing and go pray and then go back to work. And there's a rhythm to that, a set rhythm to that. And that's what this is about. There's a time of prayer, time of worship, time of solitude, time of Sabbath, time of eating meals, time of worship. <laughs> and why that distinction is important is not to suggest that we should start living like monks and five times a day we're here every day. You know, Wednesday nights too. I've heard some of you go, used to go to church on Wednesday nights. Like, I'm not saying that and just get super spiritual about things and then we'll magically become more like Jesus and we'll be transformed as a community. I don't think that's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that um, we're being invited to live life in rhythm. There's a rhythm to that. Prayers throughout the day, every day, throughout the week. Um, in her book, uh, Liturgy of the Ordinary, uh, author, she's Anglican priest, actually, Tish Harrison Warren, she writes about this. She says that we all have everyday habits. 
favorite formative practices that constitute daily liturgies. Liturgy is just a way in which worship is structured. We have a liturgy here, though some of you have been part of Catholic churches or you know, mainline denominations, you'd go, that's not a liturgy, but it's a liturgy to set form to worship. Do you know what it is? We start at 935, 937, whatever, with a song. And then Silas comes up and he leads a call to worship. And then we have two more songs. And then we have usually a community life moment. We dismiss kids. It never changes. There's sermon, there's scripture, there's sermon, there's another song, and then we bless you. That's the liturgy. There's a rhythm to it. And that can change. It's not like I'm saying, that's the way it is. Hope you like it. But that's kind of the way we've done it here. And it's different in different contexts. And what Warren is saying is that we all have these kinds of liturgies in our lives, everyday habits that form us. Here's what she says. She says, by reaching for my smartphone every morning when I wake up, you know, it sits, you know, mine does too, sits by my bed, I've developed a ritual that's trained me toward a certain end, entertainment and stimulation via technology on demand. Regardless of my professed worldview as a Christian, doesn't matter, (laughs) my unexamined daily habit is shaping me into a worshiper of a glowing screen. It's a daily liturgy. I pick it up. It's my alarm. But then I swipe up and I play Wordle. And then I play Wordle. And then I play Yurtle. And I play Nerdle. I mean, like, seriously. Do you know what she's saying? And that's me, by the way. She didn't say that. That was written a while ago. But she's saying what, you know, we are being formed by something every day, all day. And there's a ritual to that usually. And it becomes like a groove in our life. And she's saying, you know, in her book, she invites an examination of that sort of habitual liturgy, if you will, There's things that we participate in that reveal what we worship, that form who we are. And some of those are beautiful and good. In her book, she talks about the liturgy of making the bed and doing the dishes and walking the dog. And they're beautiful things. We got a dog this year, you know, COVID dog. Elizabeth does most of the walking, listens to some beautiful podcasts. I do some of the walking. I go up to Hamlin Park in North Seattle, actually, I think it's Shoreline. Deep formation happens there with my dog. Wouldn't be doing it without my dog. Make the bed, do the dishes. You might look at that and go, ugh. So there's some good opportunity there. And then there's some that are probably not as good, like picking the phone up as the first thing I look at at five in the morning, week in, week out, day in, day out. And so she's inviting us through her book, and this text is inviting us, I think, is to examine our days, examine our rhythms, examine our lives, and consider, are we living life in rhythm? Well, yeah. And what are those rhythms? And are they the rhythms that we would say, not super spiritual, but we would say, yes, God, I see you. That's the direction I want to go. That's how I want to live my life. And God, I don't know about that one. That I know is not forming me in the direction I want. Might I do that different? Might I leave the phone in the basket and allow myself to wake up differently to you, God? Paul prays this in Galatians for us, uh, that we might be formed in Christ, that Christ might be formed in us, I'm sorry, in the ways in which we live our lives, that Christ might be formed in us in the ways in which we live our lives. So prayers are just a way of describing that, I think. You know, the way in which this community is structured, it's life together, it's time together, it's day together, to encounter God together. And I'm guessing most of their prayers weren't super extraordinary prayer meetings, by the way. 
Acts 2 happens. Super extraordinary prayer meeting. I'm guessing, as somebody who's been to some prayer meetings, I know you guys have too, and it's different for every person, but I've been to some Presbyterian prayer meetings. Let me just tell you about those. They're not the Pentecostal prayer meetings. And, you know, there's the guy who nods off in the middle of the prayer meeting, and you can hear him because he's snoring. Um, there's the guy who gets distracted during the prayer meeting and, like, is thinking about, what am I going to do next? How do I get out of here? There's the guy who prays for a really long time that prayer that he thinks is really good, but it goes on and on and on and on. And maybe there's the guy who preaches like me like that. But, and there's the prayers that are just wooden and monotonous that are doing nothing. I'm imagining some of their prayers are just like that. You know, again, they're not that different than we are. They're just people. And yet, the crucible of their formation, the crucible, this is what Warren says, the crucible of our formation is in the monotony of the daily routine, in the monotony of prayer, in the monotony of just doing it. Um, The kind of spiritual life and the disciplines needed to sustain our life in Christ are quiet, repetitive, ordinary. Like I said, doing additions, dishes, praying for your enemies, reading your Bible, making your bed, the small, quiet, unseen things. It's in these that the transformation that you desire takes root and then begins to grow. And so in all these dynamics, there's so much application for our lives. Let me just finish this out, and I'll invite our worship team back up here. Obviously, there's the invitation to pilgrimage. I've already mentioned a few times, and that Dirk talked about. And to begin reflecting, you know, together, how we're called to experience formation as a community in spaces that are different than the spaces we might spend our days and weeks and months and years. Um, I've never been to Nihamachi Alley. I've been to the International District. My family, and we've lived in Seattle for quite a number of years, have never been to the International District together. So this is an opportunity for us to experience formation. Uh, I know Dirk and his family will be down there. We'll break bread. I don't know that we'll really pray, but it will be part of that. It'll be prayerful. We'll share some fellowship. We'll pay attention to what God's doing, okay? Now, maybe you can't make that. Beyond that, you know, I think this is something we want to sustain over time. So beyond that, this month, this day, there are really some important ways we could as a community be formed. Uh, I think one of them that we've been thinking about as a leadership team, I've been having more and more conversations as we kind of, I don't feel like we're coming out of COVID in any way, shape, or form, but as we're kind of learning how to live with COVID in some ways and knowing church needs to change for us. I know smaller communities of people are so important to us. The gathering of everyone together cannot be the only way in which we gather. And some of you are already part of smaller communities, small groups, Bible studies, those kinds of things. And some of you aren't. Some of you started with us in this church when we started. The neighborhood group you're part of, you know, it's been there. And it's had ups and downs, but it's been... And some of you haven't had that opportunity. You're new to this church and you're kind of waiting for the invitation. And so let me invite you now. (laughs) It could be a small group. It could be a neighborhood group. I just talked to somebody this morning about our women's ministry that's kind of gone dormant over the COVID years and like reinvigorating those kinds of things. I was talking to someone earlier this week about a writer's group. Talk about ordinary. We have some writers in this community, people who actually write. Actually. (laughs) And so like, you know, getting some folks to like that together. Um, Hikes, bike rides. I mean, I ride bikes. And so there's a few of us that like to do that. And I 
love to ride with you, cause, but I can't stay with you. So we have to do like two different groups, right? Chris is very fast. And so there's many ways. What I'm trying to say is that we can enter into the rhythm of life together. Many ways. And we want to be a community that does those on Sunday and beyond Sunday is what I'm trying to say. And so let's be devoted. Let's be a devoted community. Let's practice that incarnational life together. Maybe eat meals. Maybe sit around and pray. But let's be deeply formed. Let's be people that are formed by how we live life together. Okay? Come on up. (laughs) I didn't see you back there. I was kind (laughs) of waiting for you. (laughs) Let me pray for us. And then we'll uh, conclude as the kids come in with one more song. Well, Father God, thank you for the invitation to to formation, to uh, a life that is devoted, that is that perseveres, that pushes through the hard things, but doesn't have to do that alone. God, thank you for the reminder that we can be devoted to one another, devoted to you together. Thank you for the invitation to live an ordinary life together. That this doesn't have to be a super spiritual journey that we're on, but that we can recognize the places in our lives that you show up that we may not see you. And so even tonight, God, or this afternoon, around table, I know a lot of us will be around table today sometime. Might we see you? Might we see you in our children? Might we see you in that stranger? And God, for those of us that can't envision somebody being with us right now, or those relationships feel strained, would you bring healing? Would you bring people into our life where we might connect with you? And God, help us as a community to identify the rhythms that you're calling us toward. I spoke about groups and prayer and all the things. Help us to discern God and follow you in the direction that you're calling us. And give us the courage and the strength and the capacity to step into those areas. Thank you for what you're already doing. And thanks for what you've done this morning. God, we give it all to you. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.